on today's episode of Life Embodied. You know, in chronic pain, oftentimes what we see is there, there's a sense of pain and fatigue in the tissues of the body because it's trying to over-control its experience. It senses maybe instability or something, and then the low back muscles go, okay, I've got it, Ooh, and really contract hard to over-stabilize, quote-unquote, narrow its experience because it's so afraid of what will happen outside of the control because it's been hurt before. And the same thing can happen in the mind. It's like, wow, it's a little too dangerous and spicy and variable to live out here. And so if I narrow my definition of the world, um, everybody is self-serving and terrible and mean-spirited. Boom, narrow the world. You know, There's a protective quality to that too, because I mean, it's, it's, it kind of sucks. You know what I mean? It's, it's kind of a tough way to live and it's not that great, but it's more predictable and there's more control yeah. and there's something about it that, um, yeah, is protective and, and solves a problem. It comes with a lot of collateral costs. There's a lot of, it's hard on the system, but it does solve the stability protection problem. Welcome to Life Embodied, where we explore how an embodiment practice can support us in meeting the challenges of life. How can we surf the waves of life deeply anchored in the safety of our bodies? How can we learn to trust our capacity to be with intense sensations and emotions? How can we cultivate body awareness and why does it matter? Episodes include interviews with experts and practitioners that bring their knowledge and passion and share practical tips for your everyday life. I am your host, Katharina Alf. Thank you for joining us and enjoy the conversation. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode. Today's guest is Dr. Matthew Tolstoy. Matt is a somatic experiencing practitioner and licensed pain rehab clinician. He holds a doctor in Chinese medicine and acupuncture. With this combination of approaches, he supports people recovering from chronic pain, as well as anxiety and post-traumatic stress. What might interest the motorcycle riders among you is that Matt has a special movement training specifically for motorsport athletes. I took notice of Matt on Instagram, where I appreciate his non-bullshit and thorough approach to the complex problems that make people suffer. Matt is located in New York City, where he works hands-on, but he also offers online consultations. So, welcome, Matt. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me, and I'm so psyched to get started and have a great conversation. Cool. One thing that I found out when I researched you is that uh, you went through acting school, which is something that we have in common. Oh, really? I didn't know that either. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So yeah, I did my undergraduate at Syracuse and, and so I studied that as well as public health. And, um, yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily talk about it as much, um, in my work now, but, but really it was a, uh, it really was a fundamentally, uh, shaping experience for the work that I do now, you know, like it taught me a lot about, uh, presence with the other, you know, in the moment, 
um, taught me a lot about the voice, like the sound and the tone of the voice when something is happening, you know, when something of meaning is really happening and how there will be subtle changes in the body and in the voice and all of these things that you learn to do from, um, for let's say from an expressive perspective as an artist, you can really bring a lot of that, those skills into the, the clinical practice when you're working in a therapeutic setting with somebody else. And, um, when I look back, a lot of my sort of, uh, formative, let's say formative somatic, uh, inclinations were probably sown by that experience of just things that I, uh, went through when I went through the program at Syracuse. So, uh, yeah, I don't usually talk about that part as much, but, um, but you're totally <laughs> right. And I didn't know that we had that in common. That's cool. Yeah. And I, and, and I really, like, it resonates a lot, like, that the training definitely informs the work that I do now. And I'm sure it does your inform your work too, right? Like what you, what you just said that you're trained in expression in a way. So you become really aware of subtle changes in expression. And this can be like, like a, a, a great source of information about a person and about a person's state. For sure. For sure. Mm. So, Matt, I, I always start with the question, what is it like being your body today mm. or in general? What is the physical experience of being you? Hmm. Oh, that's such an intricate and uh, phenomenal starting question. What is it, what is it like to be in, in like my physical experience? Well, I would say that, um, I am very much like a kinesthetically led person, both in terms of like, let's say, you know, we all have our learning styles, whether that's, you know, auditory or visual, or in my case, kinesthetic. And so I've always, uh, since I was a, since I was a young kid, as well as through today, the, the way that I, the lens primarily through which I feel like I understand and interact with the world is, is mostly through my body through through movement and the way that things resonate on that level and then it spills over into let's say visual imagery or a certain type of sound or or the way that words fit together but i think primarily for me the way the sort of the tuning fork of my experience is is the is the way that things feel physically in the body that then informs kind of my other senses And then they all sort of mix together to kind of uh, orient myself in, in my reality and go from there. But I mean, qualitatively, what is it like? Well, I mean, I think words that I would use to describe it are um, there's a there's like a resonance to it, like there's like a vibration to it that I think is pretty primary to the way that I interpret my physical experience. Like it's there's an oscillation, right? that I think when I sense in and really pay attention to my experience, something that feels most distinctly like, uh, that is recognizable to me as me is that there is like a, there is like an oscillation and a sense of movement in the body that I think when I'm really feeling in tune with myself, I sense that a lot. And that's also one of the markers of when I'm kind of going off the rails a little bit and getting maybe a little bit stuck in a response <laughs> or, or dialed up or need some rest or something that that experience kind of goes away 
but um that would be the way that i would describe what it's like to uh to be in here mm. oh beautiful yeah really really appreciate this phrasing and how yeah how you say that it's it's already uh um a feedback of how in tune are you with yourself or with your with the situation you're in if the inner resonance kind of stagnates sounds like a like a rich um rich relationship with your physical being in a way mm. cool so um the modalities that you use may or may not ring a bell for people. <laughs> so what is it that you do? How would you describe it or explain it to someone who maybe doesn't know what somatic experiencing is or who's never experienced acupuncture? So yeah, yeah. what is what is it that you do yeah, with well, people? Uh, it's, it's, um, it's a question that... Um, that Uh, if if I be if I'm being really forthright and really really honest, it's a question that I constantly struggle with when I talk to people about what I do because there are kind of these um, like highlights that you that one hears when you hear about what I do, like you said, acupuncture or somatic experiencing or movement rehabilitation, and sometimes people have like a vague idea about some of them. But oftentimes what I struggle with is that the, the unique combination of those three things is sometimes very different than, let's say, the singular application of any one of those things by themselves. And so it's like we hear sometimes of these like these healthcare buzzwords, acupuncture, somatic experiencing, movement rehab or whatever, um, and it kind of starts someone's expectation about what that process is like. Some of that is helpful, but, but most of that is kind of not that helpful when i try to describe what it is that i do and so this very this little like long lead in is to say it's um it's sometimes an area of, of complication for me but the, the best way that i would describe what i do is that um the if you really boil everything down like like let's for a second not worry about the actual modalities or techniques but if we zoom out like a layer above that or a layer below that, whatever, however you want to think about it, like the generalizable principle of what I do with everybody, regardless of the modalities that we're using, is that we're helping the body orient itself and stabilize itself inside of its physical and what I'll call maybe non-physical, like, like a psychological or emotional, even though those have physical ramifications, but you understand that they're generated from some other level, that if you can orient and stabilize your system in a way that allows it to feel more present and safe so that we, so that we can be less sensitive to things like chronic pain, so that we can be less sensitive and less reactive to environmental triggers with things like anxiety and post-traumatic stress, that even though something like helping someone with maybe let's say long lasting low back pain in practice may look very different from what we would do with somebody who's having a hard time uh, i'm in new york city so let's say they're having a hard time on a crowded subway you know it makes them feel really anxious and it gives them a certain type of 
panic response. The execution of those two things may look very different, but the central principle is that we're trying to address the part of the nervous system and brain that deals with the threat response. Yeah, like how, how the body and brain interprets its environment, whether that be its movement environment, going to put your shoes on and what's happening in that environment and whether or not that's problematic for your low back or not, or whether the crowded subway is actually a physical threat to your safety in life. We have this, both of those modalities are pointed at the center of our system that just automatically and reflexively comes to conclusions and predictions about how hard it needs to rev your system in order to protect you, how hard those protections need to come online. And in the cases of people who come to see me with those types of problems, we're trying to recalibrate those things so that your quality of life is just a little bit more sustainable and a little bit more engaged where those responses are not driving so hard. And so even though it might like, it may seem really, really disparate, like someone has shoulder pain or neck pain or has a concussion or something like that versus somebody who has uh, what we would traditionally call more uh, psychological symptoms. There's really a strong overlap between the two when we look at them through a somatic lens or an autonomic nervous system lens. And so that's kind of the thing that unifies all the stuff that, that I do. So I'll pause there because I know that's kind of a, that's a bit of a, <laughs> a bit of a circle and a journey to go on, but that that's kind of the first pass of how I've ended up doing uh, what I do now. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Can I ask you something personal about this? Yeah, of course. Um, I read that your dad is a veteran and he, he went to war and that you growing up like experienced the, the stress he carried with him. And, um, so I think, I think you probably have a very, very personal, um, like very personal experience with what it might look like if someone is not oriented and stabilized in reality and not present and safe, but we're kind of like, just like the, the everyday life is perceived as a threat in a way. So how, how did this experience also in, informed or informs your work with people now, or maybe also your wish to work with people? Yeah, it's, it's, it's very fundamental to, uh, to how I've ended up where I've ended up in healthcare and in my career, uh, my experience with, with my dad for sure, because if I, th if I think about kind of the most, just sort of the most fundamental way that I think my, at the time, my young nervous system experienced the things that my dad um, held onto, holds onto, the ways in which his combat experience uh, shaped his system, was it was so, I think it was so viscerally clear and apparent to me, even though of course I had no consciousness or, or no way to put language to it uh, growing up as a kid. But, you know, you, you get the sense of when you're close to somebody who is running in those types of states all the time, you know, certain types of fight or flight protective responses that, um, you know, the having, having memories of a kid uh, of, you know, needing to 
wake my dad up uh, by poking him with a broom because he would jolt up out of bed and, and be stuck in this startle shock-oriented response that was just entrained in him from the time that he was in Vietnam. And that was just a lived reality for me. It wasn't something that later on in my clinical training, I read this book and they say that, you know, sometimes when somebody's had something happen, there are certain types of shock reactions that that become natural and automatic. Like it was just from the second that um, I showed up, you know, I had this, this attunement with a parent who was in that state. And so there's a way in which I think it's very fundamentally um, woven into my body and my nervous system is the experience of, of being close to that and seeing and seeing and experiencing how that, how that functions in an individual in a very real way, because you know, you're attuned with your parents. If you're with your parents throughout the majority of your childhood, um, there's just there's just a library of experience that is um, a part of you, a part of you, and it's definitely a part of me and what I do now. Yeah. What I see you express a lot in in um, your online content is. Um, you know that people come as if from from two they come from two directions they either look as the body as a machine that is not working properly and that needs fixing and um they yeah they they have a very mechanical view um and then on the other hand there are many people where symptoms are read as a as an intelligent language of the body trying to talk to you or um, the wisdom of the body creating symptoms um, to communicate. And obviously, both of these views have an inbuilt limitation or can become as if an obsession. So what is your, what is your take on this? Oh, well, this is this is such a great topic because I think that I think that especially in the especially in the uh, somatic experiencing or somatic therapy space, it's something that maybe doesn't get enough airtime is that yeah, this this concept of there there is unbelievable information and millennia upon millennia of natural instinct that comes hardwired inside of the body and that most of what is running our experience both physical and psychological is uh, out of our conscious awareness and so clearly there is a part of us that is propelling us in the world that is not immediately accessible through our intellect right and so then getting in touch with the body getting in touch with what i'll call uh, maybe semi-conscious parts of ourself that are not articulate in the sense of language and rationality and logic like the conscious self is, but still comes through with lots of information and helpful things to know that allow us to have a more vibrant, visceral, and what I'll call even maybe authentic experience of being alive. All of that exists, 
But I think sometimes where um, the field maybe goes a little bit too far is to is to presume that all of that information is, um, let's say, like perfect and well attuned and perfectly matched to the environment, and to not see that it's like well, the body has all of these incredible reflexes and responses that have been programmed and groomed by nature over the millennia of conscious life. But uh, it also makes a lot of mistakes too, and that's okay. But there's also a lot of things and impulses and certain types of responses that come from the body that are maybe um, uh, misguided or are being driven by, let's say, incomplete or inaccurate information. There are a lot of natural impulses inside the human consciousness that are wired for things like prediction bias and things like that. And all of that is okay. It doesn't necessarily mean we need to swing then to the other side of the spectrum and and therefore like vilify everything about intuition. But it's one of these tricky areas where there's a lot of nuance and there's a lot of um, details and and balance to be found in the middle where we can sense into and appreciate certain things that we can find through, let's say, experiencing um, impulses and knowledge that come from the body without necessarily uh, unquestioningly accepting them as the complete truth of everything that we are and that we need to know, that, that we don't parentify the body, right? Like sometimes it can be uh, we project like our, our desire for an all-knowing, wise, older other, like, like a parent, that suddenly now, once we grow to a certain age and, the, and our parents are not that, we just realize that they're fallible, normal humans, the way that we're fallible, normal humans, then that parent figure maybe gets ported over to, ah, oh, yes, it's my sense of the body. It's my nervous system that just knows everything about the world and how to handle it and what to do. And uh, that's a very understandable impulse. We all have that impulse and it's a natural one to always be wanting to look towards the all-knowing, wise other. But we can also learn that it's like a young part of ourself that's then running our experience and how maybe we can have a different relationship to that desire and to understand that there's like incredible knowledge and wisdom that can be found inside of our physical experience, inside of our intuitive experience, um, without needing to uh, take it all completely seriously at face value and never um, investigating it at all and to just sort of let it run our experience. So that that's kind of the general way that I see it is that there's there's a lot of truth on both sides and navigating mm -hmm. that can sometimes be difficult, especially in a healthcare landscape that encourages um, extremist thinking on one side or, or the other. But to find that balance between the two is I think really important. Yeah, it's as if the as if as if the mainstream medical world mostly looks as the body as the machine, and then the alternative medical world mostly looks as the body as this wise mentor that you should follow at all cost or something like that. So it's definitely time for the two to have a love child. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. Because I think I think one of the things that gets also a little undersold about you know, the body always knows is that, well, also the body has been groomed and shaped for the overwhelming majority of, of natural selection for a completely different environment than we find ourselves in now in the modern world. Mm -hmm. Like the body hasn't even caught up to agriculture, right? Like agriculture alone has been a tremendous shock to the body because 
you know, we are pretty much anatomically the same as we were 40,000 years plus or minus, you know, a few thousand years that it's just the recent advent of being able to plant and farm things five-ish thousand years ago is an unbelievable change that our body is still trying to catch up to. Not to mention something like a smartphone, like forget about it. It's unbelievably, yeah. like it's, no, it's notions about the world and the environment are so, 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 so old and so mismatched for the types of environments we find ourselves in now, which doesn't mean that it's, again, it's not completely useless, but the body is very confused because it's woken up inside of an environment that in the last, if we look at all of evolutionary history, like in the last two and a half seconds has radically changed and it's unprepared for that change. So it's disoriented a lot and it doesn't kind of know what to make sense of it a lot of the time, which is why we have all of these, you know, bizarre impulses to survive in the world that we live in, in a way that's not really matched for the world that we live in, because our body's been programmed for the overwhelming majority of our time for a very, very, very different environment. And so there's a little bit of, I think, humility that we have to have in sort of looking at that too, inside of that lens of, you know, our body's natural inklings to what we should or shouldn't do or how we should live in the world, because it's so um, artificial nowadays. And there's a certain type of navigation that needs to take place that's very unique to this point in time oh yeah yeah i think you even once uh wrote about this like uh, so what am what am i supposed to do now with all this energy i mobilized to fight the saber-toothed tiger <laughs> yeah but you really just got an email yeah <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah exactly exactly yeah we don't have we don't have a circuit yet we don't have a circuit yet for the stressful email you know what i mean we only have the saber-toothed tiger attack circuit <laughs> and so that's that's just a little hard when the majority of our threats um, on an everyday basis are mostly, you know, email. It's, it's hard. You know, it's, it's a mismatch of yeah. what our system was groomed for versus what our system is being presented with. Yeah. 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 And I think it really touches on this topic of so what is what is intuition and what is actually me being triggered? Like I experienced both of it in the inside. Um It's an it's an internal response to reality, and how do I differentiate then my intuition that is spot on, that is perceiving something that I might not consciously understand or cognitively understand, but my 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 gut feeling is telling me, oh, something's off. And where is it just me being triggered by something completely harmless and actually harmless, and I'm just overreacting in a way? So I think this is a this is an, an evergreen question in a way. Absolutely, this and this is something that I spend um, a lot of time in the office uh, working on with a certain percentage of the people who find their way to me, because a lot of the people who uh, find their way to me have come from some branch of wellness culture, and and oftentimes this concept of you know, always trust your intuition. Your intuition is always right. There's something smarter than you telling you these intuitive impulses and you should just always listen to them and learn what you can from them. And having that sort of kind of work out, but then in other ways harm the person. It's it's something that I spent a lot of time in the office talking with people. And I think it's a great topic to to discuss further because it's a great question. Like, It doesn't take a lot to have an intuitive feeling about something. It just takes a certain type of emotion with a certain t certain amount of co self-confidence to then produce an, in, uh, an intuitive sense uh, 
about our world and about our experience. And so how do we differentiate between intuitions that are being uh, generated by a part of us that has picked up on something very real and uh, distinguishing about our environment that we need to uh, that we need to act on, that we need to listen to, versus a part of our uh, reactive system that has maybe uh, filled in the gaps creatively a little bit based on our history <laughs> or based on the things that we're afraid of. Because again, we can only ever experience so much information at one time. Our brain is very good at filling in the gaps. And sometimes when we've been through really difficult things that have been very, very harmful to us, our sensitivity to filling in the gaps in a particular way goes way up. And so it can be very hard to disentangle those two experiences of a genuine sense of something that we need to listen to in a given moment and really let drive our behavior versus something we need to acknowledge and feel and let it have a voice, but then also have it occupy a certain part of our decision-making process, not being the, the only arbiter of what we do and so how do we tell the difference? Well, that's really hard. And it's hard to know because everybody's system, the way that you communicate with yourself is a little different. But I think in general, the way that I've worked through this with people is that we begin to parse out and we begin to learn in detail the ways in which the triggering activation cycles begin to feel in a very detailed kind of way, particularly through the body. Mm -hmm. What I mean by that more specifically is like, well, well, the phrase I use with a lot of people is like, we want to find the before the before, you know, before something happened, before you had that response or before that emotional state got to be six, seven, eight out of 10 intensity. What were the things that were happening at maybe two, three, four out of 10? What were the body signals associated with that? And then we can start to learn and map a little bit more about what those activation cycles feel like, more specifically, before they're really loud and get a lot of our attention and then we're swept up inside of them. We can learn to track them earlier because when we can track them earlier, there's more information and we can sometimes um, make better choices inside of those moments. But more importantly, in, in terms of this topic, we can then begin to distinguish between those sensations in the body versus the sensations of like what we call maybe a more um, reality-based intuition about what's happening right now, that there will be subtle differences in the way the body signals that to you compared to one when you're inside of, let's say, a learned response or a habituated self-protective response. There will be a different signature in the body and part of our work together over time is to slow things down and stretch things out enough to be able to identify what those things are so that then as you're in a given moment, you can notice, mm, oh, wow, I feel that thing in my chest. I know I'm kind of getting on to a typical response. Maybe I should you know, take a second to really examine what's going on before I take it at face value versus, wow, I'm going to say things that people have said to me. I feel that relaxed feeling behind my eyes as I really consider this option. And that usually means that I'm kind of in more of a adaptive, calm, you know, oriented, present moment state. But then what's great is that you don't have to necessarily just choose. What you can do is go mm -hmm. moment by moment and then sense and watch what the body does 
as we follow one. Maybe you do feel that thing behind the eyes and then you get two steps further and you realize, oh, nope, I am going in this direction where <laughs> I'm having a habituated response. The idea is like it's not necessarily a fork in the road. There are all of these different differentiations. And as we get better at not rushing to a conclusion about which one of these things it is, we just learn like how to be more present moment to moment and learn when we're going in a particular response versus when we're staying adaptive and present and responding to the environment in a more um, alive, present kind of way. Mm. Yeah, nice. Could you could you maybe like even zoom in on this a little bit more? Like what would be cues to pick up on that point to a kind of like quote unquote overreaction and what would be more like a a relaxed in tune in a response like you know like 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 kind of kind of a few hacks how to spot it in yourself yeah um it gets tricky because there's a lot of different ways that that language in the body can express itself to different people depending on how their nervous system is wired up but i would say most generally categorically the things to look out for I think that on the, let's say on the uh, like mm, activation side of the spectrum where maybe the system's getting pushed towards a defensive response rather than an adaptive, open, present response, I would say we can look out for a few different things. We can look out for uh, just a general sense of how connected and present with, I would say, the entirety of your body you can notice. Like if you're able to scan through and you can still feel kind of like a a gentle presence let's say in your limbs like your legs your arms you can feel a sense of flow inside of your body there when we get inside of these other responses that are maybe a little bit more uh, hardened or a little bit more self-protective is that we might start to either really start to constrict a lot like there'll be body tension that maybe uh is cutting us off from a full sense of Our body, we maybe get compressed and feel like, you know, we really exist in this upper body or something like that because there's all this tension and that survival energy is kind of rising up and compressing us into a very, uh, like smaller part of our physical experience. Or sometimes you go the other way where there's more of a dissociative element where it's like, whoa, I kind of feel myself checking out a little bit. Like when I go down to sense my feet on the floor, it's kind of really hard for me to feel them or I don't really feel my hands anymore, or it's it's got, things are getting a little fuzzy and a little vague. Those are two ends of the spectrum of commonly what we see when maybe an automatic response is starting to take over and we're kind of reacting from a different place, you know, maybe in response to a difficult thing that's happened to us in the past, as opposed to something that's happening right now. Whereas when we're maybe following something that feels a little bit more, what I'll call like, Not it's not it's not necessarily like a good or bad thing. The word I keep using is adaptive, meaning like I'm present, I'm here, I can respond, I can go left, I can go right. There's a there's an openness to it, and oftentimes then it's like as you kind of check and scan through the body, it's like yeah, there's kind of this overall sense of presence. I can really, I can kind of sense into my arms. I can feel my legs. Yeah, there's a, I can feel that contact. If if you're sitting in a chair, I can feel the contact of the chair with my body. There's a, there's a level of connection to your internal life as it relates to the environment together that when you're really there with yourself, 
will be online and present. And that maybe that's a thing to follow because there's just simply more of you here. There's more of you here living, making that decision moment to moment, as opposed to maybe less of you that's being constrained through the muscle tension or less of you because we've kind of checked out and left half of the body through dissociation, that when you feel the totality of the presence in the body, that that could be a sign that you're kind of still really there and keep following what you're following because um, there's a stability and a presence to that. But that would be the most general way that I would uh, flag for people to explore in your experience. Mm. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you. I, when you, I, I never, I never heard someone call the the online state adaptive, but I really like it because it, it's kind of, are you adaptive to the current situation or are you reenacting an adaptation that you came up with at another point in your life that is not appropriate right now? Exactly, exactly. Because if we think about, you know, whether it be post-traumatic stress or just simply the challenging experiences that have shaped um, our nervous system, is that you're totally right. It, it goes into a protective response that it learned to do before. Something that was a, that was maybe appropriate to a different experience then that is maybe not appropriate for what's happening now, but there's a similarity to it that the body was, ah, yes, I know what to do. It's this thing. I've learned how to do it. Here we go. And boom, we're off to the races. It's like, well, well maybe not so much, maybe not so much. And so the word adaptive just means that we have that flexibility to go back and forth between maybe there is an experience where you need that thing that you learned in order to survive back then we do the, the, the goal here is not to press delete on that file we want that file because it works it just it works under a certain set of circumstances and we want to have the adaptive ability to recognize the environment with a level of clarity so that we know oh yes this is actually an experience that needs that file versus, well, maybe we could build something else that's a little bit more appropriate for here. And when we're having a hard time is often when we've lost that flexibility and we've lost that adaptability. And so, yeah, the word adaptive I've gotten in the habit of using because it's also, um, like I mentioned, there's, there's no value judgment to it. It's not about a better response. It's like, well, it's more adaptive. It's more flexible. It's more open because who knows what the right response is? I don't know. Life is complicated. You know, I'm not ready to stake a claim and say, oh, yes, that's the right one, as opposed to, well, I don't know, let's show up and respond and go moment by moment and and um, have an adaptive, open mindset rather than trying to be right, which maybe takes us back to the intuition thing. Because if we have an intuition about something, oftentimes we want it to be right. There's a huge motivation for it to be right because it makes us feel powerful in the world, right? Like we have control over our environment. We can predict what it is. We feel good about, feel masterful because we were right in our intuition, as opposed to just simply being open and adaptive and available to be wrong and that's okay. And then just change because I'm flexible as opposed to being like I, my intuition about it has to be right. And I'm going to um, sort of, you know, <laughs> fit the square peg in the round hole in order to make sure that <laughs> I reinforce that sense that it was right, you know? versus just present and alive. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, beautiful. I was just wondering if um whether you sometimes catch a more protective response by observing how the person's worldview becomes kind of more narrow 
that they kind of that it kind of expresses in like very limiting beliefs about themselves or the world which kind of mm -hmm. corresponds with what you just said like this need to be right for example yeah yeah it's well it's a great it's a great parallel between what can happen in the body and what can happen in the mind or the worldview like you said there's a narrowing and that narrowing can also be reflected in somebody's t body tension and constriction pattern in the tissues of their body. You know, in chronic pain, oftentimes what we see is um, there, 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 there's a sense of pain and fatigue in the tissues of the body because it's trying to over control its experience. It senses maybe instability or something and then the low back muscles go, okay, I've got it. Ooh, and really contract hard to overstabilize, quote unquote, narrow its experience because it's so afraid of what will happen outside of the control because it's been hurt before you know that we've had that experience if you go to pick up the thing or you stepped off the curb a weird way or you miss that last step or whatever the thing that happened that really shocked the system from a pain standpoint sometimes the body goes into this self-protective organizational strategy to limit those experiences and the same thing can happen in the mind. It's like, wow, it's a little too dangerous and spicy and variable to live out here because people either let me down or I'm afraid of the things that people say or there, there are certain ways in which I'm bumping into my environment that is really not great. And so if I narrow my definition of the world, um, everybody is self-serving and terrible and mean-spirited. Boom, narrow the world, you know? there's a protective quality to that too because i mean it's it's it kind of sucks you know what i mean it's it's kind of a <laughs> tough way to live and it's not that great but it's more predictable and there's more control yeah. and there's something about it that um yeah is protective and and solves a problem it comes with a lot of collateral costs there's a lot of it's hard on the system but it does solve the stability protection problem the same way that a really tense low back limits our movement options so that we don't have that moment again where we step off the curb and an unexpected amount of force travels through the tissues of our body that feels threatening. It's the parallel between the two, but that narrowing of experience and that hardening and lessening of flexibility, lessening of adaptability is one of the ways that, um, yeah, that our system learns to protect itself. And the parallel there between the two is very strong. Mm-hmm. If we look at the other side, because you also now just mentioned it, like that the back might not be afraid of uh, boundaries being crossed, but it might also be afraid of like going down the stairs or... Uh, moving forward or something. How do you approach this with a client that comes with this kind of pain uh, where you would maybe look at it with a more, with more of the mechanical view, if you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think this, this is a, this is a great question that highlights, um, sometimes the the flex <laughs> the flexibility and the adaptability of how we can work in the clinic because there are many people for whom i see that that have let's say some type of uh 
chronic back pain. And we don't do any somatic experiencing, right? Like we don't necessarily need to do that to recalibrate their nervous system with the experiences that have shaped what is setting off their protective mechanisms for their low back pain. Mm, somatic experiencing might not be the thing that has the most powerful leverage on recalibrating that system that might be learning to breathe and stabilize in different positions relative to gravity in different joint positions or whatever, that the execution of that would look very much like physiotherapy or something like that. But what we're really trying to do is to expose the body and the nervous system to these joint positions, to these amounts of muscle tension that then can reintroduce a level of variability and stability. We're talking about like literal stability inside of the system in a new kind of way. It's the same principle, but we're just working on a different level of the nervous system that, um, you know, we would use a very, I would call it quote unquote mechanical because that's the way it would look like we were doing, you know, rehabilitative exercise, but it's through this lens of how can we expose the brain and the body to, let's say, certain types of positions and movements that it's currently having a, uh, a protective response to. The back pain is trying to protect you from bending a certain way because it really feels like if I let myself bend a certain way, something really bad is going to happen to the back, so please don't do that, and it makes it painful and tense in order to stop that experience. That might not, that's, that's likely for many people not psychologically generated. That's not coming from, uh, let's say, a psychological fear of that movement, but there's an automatic reflex inside of the movement organizing system that says, mm, I don't think that's such a great idea. And so then we need to, what do we need to do? Well, we need to, you know, slowly and gradually expose it to those movements, maybe approach it from a way that is not necessarily as direct as the movement that's getting flagged. You know, maybe we have you lay on your side and repeat that same movement so you can feel the contact with the floor. Maybe your feet are on the wall so the body has a sense of its environment a little bit more clearly. You do that same movement and all of a sudden now the body doesn't see it as such a threat to the system. And so that's still somatic experiencing, but it's not the same type of execution as we would in like a sitting psychotherapeutic model, but it's targeting the same area of the brain. It's just the content of that situation is different than let's say somebody who's having a hard time with a, a narrowing of their worldview when it comes to, uh, let's say their, their depressive symptoms or something like that. But at the end of the day, if we zoom out far enough and look at the nervous system, it's, it's the same type of area that we're working on. This one is just mm. more quote unquote mechanical or physical, and this one is more quote unquote psychological or psychophysiological. <laughs> yeah. So how does the how does then the the moment of release or reintegration look the same or different in these two different settings? Mm. Yeah, the the moment of like when when we've given the brain, the nervous system, the body, when we've given it enough meaningful experience to recalibrate itself around, right? Whether that be movements, joint position, breathing, whatever, or whether on the somatic experiencing side of things, body sensations as they relate to memory, internal image, posture, things like that. How do those moments of recalibration Let's say like how they're similar, how they're different. Well, I think the way in which they're similar 
is that there is definitely, you know, to use the to use the the, the classic term, there is definitely a felt sense of somebody just experiencing their body differently. You know, in the beginning, that might not necessarily even be like the clouds have parted and there's like a chorus of angels singing down upon them. Like the experience is so different and magical and healing. It might in the beginning just be different, but different in a really meaningful way. Like, wow, like we were saying earlier, my legs just feel so different than I'm used to. Like there's maybe a sense of aliveness or maybe there's just a sense of some type of awareness that was not there before that is palpable and real that the body and the brain is listening to and organizing around instead of just running the same pattern it goes a it goes b it goes c the end nothing to change here nothing to report it's business as usual that's when we're still in the response but when something different that gets our attention and is experiential like i can direct it's touchable and real i can feel it right now in the moment that's interesting information that then can begin to reshape these responses so that's what's similar between the two groups is that whether that's then you go down to uh you lean over to 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 put your shoes on and your back doesn't feel the same way anymore that's great or whether that's you go on the subway and you don't feel the crushing sensation in your chest there's a physical experience that's different how those two areas may be different is that, well, I mean, oftentimes when we're dealing with somatic experiencing and using that as the tool to recalibrate somebody's system, there will often be a physical change, like a sense of different sensations in the body, but oftentimes that comes with a multi-sensory change as well. A lot of times people will just say like, wow, I don't know, the colors in the room now just feel much more vibrant because the nervous system is allowing more sensory information in. Talking about narrowing, it's now widening its sensory experience because it feels safe enough to include more things. So sometimes people feel like more channels of themselves are experiencing the world differently. There'll be a different, of course, there'll be a different emotional sense of what's happening. There'll be a different sense of just the way that the body and the mind is orienting itself in the world will feel fundamentally different. Whereas with chronic pain, um, there might be all of those layers at the same time, depending on somebody's pattern, that's not unheard of, but it might be just a little bit more on the level of sensation. Like, wow, my, my back feels lighter and like I can move a little bit better. And sure that there are upstream effects to that. Of course, people typically feel a little bit better about their experience on an emotional level, but it might not necessarily be as palpable and as real as, let's say, just a greater sense of freedom and ease in the body. Um, so there are some similarities and there are also some differences depending on which tool we're using to access that type of change. Mm. Yeah, cool. I, I've just had a really interesting experience myself because I, I on and off struggle with back pain myself. And I definitely already uncovered a lot of like super old and deep patterns around it that go into my childhood and, you know, like received many sessions on it. There was a lot of emotional release and still the pain comes back. Like what the, and uh, what I just recently experienced is because I was in suddenly in intense pain again, which was like a habituated reaction to something going on. 
but then the pain was there because I cramped so hard that, you know, now the body was just in pain, even though I resolved the situation in my life. This, the pain just like was like, oh, God, I'm so sore now. And what I then experienced is because I just went to a movement workshop and, and I did a lot of stuff that I was super afraid would that it would hurt my back, but I kind of did it anyways. And it didn't hurt my back. On the contrary, the pain got way less. Like I really, like I rolled around and we wrestled and like really physically intense stuff. And I found out like that the, that the pain that I hold onto now is mostly the fear of, of my back hurting again. If that makes sense. And that when I then overcame this, this fear and did the movement anyways, I noticed like, wow, it isn't painful actually. Like I, I can do this. And then there was like the, the emotional release wasn't so big. I mean, there was some release of, of fear in a way and like intense sensations, but it was very, very physical because it was not about my childhood trauma now, but because about something very different. I love this example so much. Uh, I really, this is such a great, I'm so glad you brought it up because this, this highlights, I think, a, a, this highlights a lot of what I try to include in, in my practice is that, is that there are many layers to our patterns. There are some that are more psycho-emotional. There are some that are physical. There's a lot of overlap between the two. But I think that there's, there's sometimes a polarization where um, a lot of people come to me and a lot of providers um, sometimes have discussions with me about, well, is it mechanical or is it emotional, my pain? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And I don't know if we necessarily need to make a choice about that because the body doesn't know the difference between that. <laughs> and we probably need inputs to both our mechanical movement and our emotional selves when the pattern includes both of those things. And so sometimes, like you said in your example, you gave a lot of input to the emotional side of things and made a lot of really good process, but there was still a layer of the nervous system that was like, ah, but I still have to run this back pain that was maybe being driven a little bit more by um, reticence or fear around the actual mechanics of moving because it hadn't had enough physical experience of actually moving the joints in a particular way and having things be okay, that it hadn't had that experience yet. So it didn't know that it could trust it. But what I think is so cool about your story is that if you maybe would have just done the movement class without doing the other work, it may not have been okay enough to experience those wrestling, tumbling, rolling motions, and then have it reorganized in a great new way. It might've been like, whoa, this is overflowing the system right now because there's all this other stuff that's over here on this other channel. And like, whoa, I don't know. It might've actually hurt your back if you hadn't mm -hmm. done some of the other things that you did. And then the same way with other people, I treat other people who have really made a lot of strides in the physio world, who have learned to move differently and they're much more physically resilient, but there is still some sort of psycho emotional physiological component that has not been resolved that is still now causing the back pain and the great thing is is that we can just kind of try to look and assess and go moment by moment to see where the biggest uh where the biggest conflict is inside of somebody's system and work on that level to then take it to the next place and that we don't have to decide oh it's just it's just psychological you just need to 
you know, get over it, mind over matter. That's it. It's like, well, there, there's a, there's a, there is, there is a zone where we do both at the same time. And, uh, it sounds like that's kind of what happened for you. And it's, it's, um, it's, it's such a great story that, that, that demonstrates the, the real, the real overlap and the real interconnection between, um, our emotions and our mechanical body. Yeah. Yeah. I think in, in a way like this separation is just very, very artificial, right? Like it's really, it, 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 maybe it looks like two different entry points, but in the end we, you know, we don't know if we are anything other than our body. Like we might be, but that's, that's just beliefs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'd like to pull up a quote. <laughs> so let, let me quote you to you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You said, the longer I work in mental health, the more I think intentionally protecting and cultivating our attention is more important than ever. To be blunt, so many of us feel like shit in the modern world because our attention is so fragmented. End quote. So... What are you onto, Matt? What is this about? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, oh man, it's a big topic, and it's something that I think I've really, I've really been focused on in the last. I would say probably the last like uh, two years or so. It's become something more central to to how I work with people and how I conceptualize my work with people. Because obviously with somatic experiencing, we're using attention, right? Like we're directing attention to different aspects of our experience in order to learn things, in order to experience new things. That's why it's called somatic experiencing. And we do that through attention. And I think now more than ever, we have... I mean, we have the strongest, most well-resourced companies in the world pointed at monetizing our attention in a way, speaking of like what the body is prepared or not prepared in the environment for, we are completely unprepared, biologically speaking, for the complete assault on our attention that things like social media, uh, surveillance capitalism, and all of these things that make up so much of our modern digital experience um, that serve to fragment, break, direct, redirect, make extreme our focuses of attention. And I think it's a huge area that is having such a global impact not just global in terms of the whole world, but a global impact on every individual's life who engages with these types of attention-seeking forces. Because it, it, it really, it changes the lens through which we experience the world. If we can only experience the world through fragmented chunks of attention, I think the latest research on people who work in like a regular nine to five office job where you're on a computer is something like on a good day, 
you are interrupted every three minutes or you change tasks every three minutes. And that might be kind of like generous in terms of how long you're able to go without somebody interrupting you, you getting a certain message, a personal text message comes through, um, a different type of notification pops up that we're training our attention to only ever be focused on something for a certain period of time, which I think there, of course, there's maybe the typical, you know, it gets repurposed in the productivity realm of like, well, then you're not as productive as you could be, which I think, you know, sure, that's one branch (laughs) of it. But I think from a more healthcare oriented thing is that it makes it really hard to let meaningful experiences land inside because it's hard. We're, we're training our attention to not really stay with things that when we're trying to repair a relationship with somebody close to us, or we're trying to have a different relationship with rest and recovery, it becomes very difficult to even experience those things in a real way. Like they don't feel real anymore because it's so broken up by the way that our world is training our ability to be with something in a meaningful way. There's not a lot of incentive anymore to be with something in a meaningful way because, again, things are really monetized around switching to the next thing, switching to the next thing. And I think that it has a really, really strong pull on our mental health because we're not able to let these resources land inside of us. We're not able to really feel the sense of support, whether that be social support or personal support, or just the things that make us feel uh, grounded in our experience that they, they kind of have like a pale abstract quality rather than a visceral, real, touchable experience to them. And I think that it's really doing us a lot of harm and um, mm-hmm. learning to engage with that in a conscious way is so important because there are a lot of things that are consciously aimed at fragmenting our attention. And so it's kind of our responsibility now to have to sort of uh, counteract that, you know, otherwise we just sort of ride this momentum of somebody else's business model, you know? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for laying this out so clearly. So I do have a little request, but before I come up with that, is there anything that I did ask you that you would really like to speak on that kind of gets you going at the moment that is your favorite topic or, um, yeah, that you would just like to nerd out about? Oh, my favorite, my favorite topic. Yeah. Um, well, some, something, something that, You might end up cutting this because it gets a little technical and might be not that interesting to many people. But something that um, something that I that I, I sort of uh, I spend a bit of time uh, learning about and and yeah, like activates the the nerdy part of of myself is is a bit about how the brain structures consciousness and how it structures um, our experience of the world. And something lately that I came across in terms of like our latest models of understanding like how we see and experience the world um was different than than what i had learned you know several years ago about how it's like hey yeah the brain experiences all of our sensory data and then comes up with like a picture of the world you know like we see the tree we see the doorway we see the things that make up our world because light hits 
our eyes and then we make sense of that and our, our sensory system touches things and we make sense of that. And that's how we build the world is through our sensory information. And while that's still true, there's been some really interesting research that's come out that says that really it's a lot more what we call top down rather than bottom up. Bottom up meaning what we feel through our body comes up and goes to our brain and then we process it versus something coming from our brain that then gets filtered down into what we're experiencing in our body. And what we're learning is that the brain has all of these predictive models about the world, about just what it expects to see or what it expects to experience based on our life. And that there are actually like 10 times more connections coming from like the front part of our brain that makes predictions and thinks about things and has like a picture of the world, has a has a prediction about the world. There's like 10 times more projections from that part of the brain to our visual area than what our eye says to our visual area. So what we can do is we can literally learn to see the world differently by learning and changing our perspective because our our vision and what we what we see in the world the way that we, the world presents to us is mostly filled in by a prediction model it's not actually what we're literally physically seeing because we don't have enough brain hardware to process all of that sensory information directly there's only a very small area of our eye that can see detail and most of like our peripheral vision and things like that is being filled in with like a fabrication from our brain which like, for example, if you take like a color and put it at the very, very, very edge of your peripheral vision, like just at the edge, um, you'll be unable to tell what color it is, not because you're colorblind, but because we literally can't process that visual information. And the color you think you are seeing in your peripheral vision is actually made up by the predictions in your brain. It's not what the eye is literally seeing. And so it speaks to this thing about how much our reality is created by our expectation of our reality even in a very physical kind of way. And part of what I do in the work with, and part of what I do uh, in my work with people is to learn to recalibrate those predictions about reality so that it serves you a little bit more in your quality of life and it serves you a little bit more um, to just like feel more present and stable and adaptive because our brain is working so hard to fill in the gaps. And it's also just kind of <laughs> wild to me that that's how it is, that like our, our brain is really just making it up as we go and then there's like these little error corrections that show up where our sensory system says oh actually that little part of your prediction was a little wrong please update it uh, but like we're mostly run by the prediction and then there's like a little bit of these fine-tuning things that come in through our senses that we're mostly driven by the model we're not really driven by the senses the senses just sort of serve to update the model and that's like crazy to me that we're really living inside of our own hallucination but that it just sort of kind of maps out to other people's and we kind of can functionally exist in the world it's like unreal to me but that's sort of the nerdy thing that i've you know been spending yeah. some time reading and learning about that you know it's a little bit off the deep end, but... Uh, no, I love it. Holy shit. I mean, thank God for the plasticity of our brains, right? I mean, we'd be stuck in hell. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Really appreciate it. So here comes my request, yeah? What is, what is a first step or a low-key practical thing that people can do to go from protective to adaptive? Mm. Well, I think 
I think one of the first steps we alluded to earlier when we were talking about learning the physical signature of how your body goes into some of the self-protective learned responses, simply getting a better grasp on how that plays out inside of your body. What are the automated responses that are specific to you and how your system learned to survive in a particular way? That the more awareness that you can build around that pattern, the more the next step will come to you. You know, there, that's where there, that opens the doorway to then, okay, well, if this is what's happening and this is why it's happening, what else can I do? You know, and then, then sometimes like a more creative part of yourself can then have an answer to that. And then you're off to the races and that's really great. But I think, you know, what are some other beginning steps around that? I think, I think in addition to learning the physical steps that are, that are happening for you, I think, I think you can work the other side of the spectrum as well. What I mean by the other side of the spectrum is learning the physical signatures around how your body likes stuff, how your body feels rested mm -hmm. and stable and safe and secure, even if it's in a very subtle way. Because I work with many people that say, yeah, I never feel like that. So what do you want me to do? I don't, I don't, even when I'm at home by myself, there's a uh, quality to it. You know, what do you want me to do? It's like, that's okay. It doesn't necessarily need to be the most profound, earth-shatteringly positive experience of your life. It can even be something like an example that works for a lot of people is like, even if you, if you like music and you have music you like, put on music that you like and just watch how you like it. Like, how do you even know you like it? Mm -hmm. Is the question that I ask a lot of people. <laughs> Not like in a, you know, <laughs> gaslighting kind of way, like, oh, maybe you don't really like your music. No, no, no. Of course you like it. But like getting curious about how does my system signal back to me like, oh, this is good. Like, I like this. Is there a, I don't know, is, there, is it easier to take a breath and you feel your body expand a little bit more? Do you give your weight into your chair a little bit more easily so that you're just supported? Is there a, I don't know, a relaxation across your forehead? Like, it doesn't matter what it is, but just like engaging with something that you like. Eat some food that you really love and just watch yourself engage with the sensory experience of how you like it because then we begin to recognize both sides here we begin to yes recognize the way in which your system begins to tell you it's maybe going into a certain type of unhelpful misattuned learned response to protect you but then there's also ways in which you can learn to recognize the ways in which your system says yes i want to go towards this experience more and for people who are really struggling that might be very very quiet to begin with. And so don't, you know, I tell people, try not to be cynical about how quiet those subtle signs of enjoyment and pleasure are. Try not to say, ah, oh, well, it's so little, it can't matter. Because the more you can consciously engage with them and go to meet them, the more they strengthen in your experience. Because something inside of you goes, oh, whoa, somebody's listening. Hey, that's great. Oh yeah, let me tell you all about it. But I'm used to you not listening and just blowing past it. Um, but hey, somebody's conscious, somebody woke up and is here. That's great. It will become more viscerally real to you if you can take it seriously and engage with it, even if it's really subtle to start. And so those would be the two steps that I tell people on a practical level is to begin to map
both of those experiences in the body. And then that will lead you to the next step of what to do and the next thing, mm -hmm. because now new information has been brought to your attention that's been felt in the body and also recognized in the mind. And when that happens, that's like A plus B, C then shows up, whatever that next thing is. I don't know what that will be, but that's, that's the process of how we start to build a new set of circumstances that your system can calibrate around is having both sides um, more consciously known in your experience. Mm. Mm, I really like that. That's that's good homework, I think. <laughs> yeah. Mm. So what's a good way to find more about you and your work and to get in touch with you if people are interested? Oh, sure. Well, uh, most of the writing that I do about my work is uh, is out on Instagram. So if you find me there, you know, uh, just Matt Tolstoy is my handle there. You can find me there. That has a link to uh, my website, you know, www.matttolstoy.com. That'll take you there. That has contact information if you'd like to reach out, have some writing on there, you know, additional information about the type of work that I do with people. But yeah, you can feel free to reach out to on either of those channels. Um, I always love getting, you know, either questions or spurring conversations about this type of work. Because you know it's you know it's a little bit outside of like the normal thing that people engage with when it comes to uh, certain certain parts of healthcare. So it's great to sort of begin to increase awareness around that these types of practices exist and and what are they and what do they do. And so you know feel free to to either reach out on Instagram or through the contact form on the website if you have questions or anything like that. Because I'm always happy to chat about it because it's um you know this is part of like a new area of healthcare that's becoming a little bit more mainstream. So always happy to have. Uh, conversations about this kind of stuff yeah for sure for sure and there are, i mean there are many interesting topics that we didn't touch on today so i might have to ask you back on <laughs> no i would love that that would be so great cool so yeah thank you so much for your time this has been amazing oh man thank you so so much this was really great i appreciate uh everybody listening this was really fun So guys, you heard the doctor, off you go and do enjoyable things and notice how you like them and how that feels in your body. Isn't that a great homework? Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. I sure did. And if you in general like the podcast, I'd be so happy if you liked, subscribed, shared, left a review. It means a lot. Hopefully see you back in two weeks.